Start off by saying how awesome Emmaus is. Where are my kids at? Hey. We just had our um, our banquet, our end of the semester banquet last night. And we, we had a really good time. You guys had a good time? We watched uh, a lot of slideshows um, and a lot more slideshows. And we heard a lot of testimonies and we ate good food. And I think we had a, a wonderful time. But uh, throughout the banquet, I just kept thinking... Um, Man, we're reaping so many blessings from the prayers of so many people. And so I know that you guys, um, on different accounts, have been praying for Emmaus. And so I, on behalf of the ministry, we want to say thank you. Uh, God has truly blessed us this semester, and we're really excited for next semester. Amen? Amen. All right, uh, so before we get started, let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just uh, gather here tonight to meet with you, Lord. And Father, we just pray that as we, uh, Father, open up your word, that your spirit would come in like a wind. And Father, your spirit will bring fresh revelation of, Father, who you are, God. And I pray the truth of your word will begin to break bondages of our life, Lord. That the truth of your word will begin to renew our minds and begin to cleanse us from within, Lord. Father, that the authority of your word, Father, will begin to encourage us and inspire us to rise up to be all that you have called us to be, Lord. Father, we pray, O oh Lord, that you meet us here tonight. God, and that you manifest your glory and your power in this place. Father, I submit myself under your spirit right now, Lord. I pray that every word that is spoken through me, God, would be inspired by you and you alone. Father, we exalt you and we lift you up. And I pray that tonight you may be glorified and you may be exalted. And that, Father, we may rejoice in knowing that you are an awesome God. We just, we love you, Lord. And we just, um, Father, are so humbled by all that you are. In your son's mighty and precious name, Jesus Christ, we pray all these things. Amen. Amen. All right, let's open up our Bibles to Mark 10. Mark 10, uh, verses 17 to 31. And if you guys are uh, ready, um, just look up so I can know that you're there. And smile. <laughs> okay, great. All right, uh, let's um, read verse by verse. I'll read one verse and you guys read the next one. Mark 10, and we're starting from verse 17. Okay. You guys ready? All right, here we go. Uh, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. 
Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Amen. Amen. Okay. <laughs> all right, so we're looking at a very famous passage in the Bible. I'm sure you guys are all familiar with this word, right? And uh, you guys probably heard many messages on this word, but, uh, you know, God's word is the living word. Amen. And sometimes you can uh, get a message from the same passage and, man, every single time God will speak something new to you. So if you guys believe that God has something to say to you tonight, say amen. Amen. All right, so we're going to go through this passage uh, verse by verse. And, you know, for a little bit of background information, uh, the rich young ruler, this story is found in three of the four Gospels. And, you know, if you guys go through the Gospels, not all the stories are in all of them. Um, but when it's mentioned more than once, you probably have to pay attention to it, right? And so, uh, you know, we're going to go through this scene and we're going to play it in, my, in our minds. And hopefully the truth that's weaved in the conversations between Jesus and this rich young ruler, as well as Jesus and his disciples, will begin to really take root in our hearts, so let's start from the very beginning. The scene, it, it starts off with Jesus doing what? Right, he's setting out on his journey. You know, this verse, it almost indicates that there's, uh, Jesus is in action, right? So we can imagine him uh, walking with his disciples. They probably have all their things with them, which is probably not a lot. Right, And they just finished doing this great preaching and teaching at one place, and they're probably going to the second place that they have on their agenda. Right? And suddenly, we have a young man that comes and runs up to Jesus, the word says, and kneels before him. Right? You know, this sort of scene is almost common all throughout the Gospels. Jesus is heading from A to B, and in between, there's all these like surprise encounters where people just... In, who are like in dire need come up to him and ask for prayer or you know ask for healing or whatnot 
And Jesus, every single time, he stops for them, right? And I just always am so amazed because especially for the mission teams that are going out, uh, when you have a plan set, sometimes when it's inconvenient for us, we don't like to stop, right? Um, but as we read in the Gospels, some of the greatest miracles happen in these sort of unplanned moments when Jesus meets and stops on behalf of someone that is inquiring something of him. Uh, so we're going to be looking at this particular one. And so Jesus stops, and I don't know how it all looked, but I can imagine this, because we know that he's rich and young because of the title of the parable, right? So um, I imagine him in, I guess, nice clothing. I don't know what that is. In back in the day, but the Gucci of clothes, I don't know, this young man is in with the Gucci monogram, right, over his sash. And um, here he is, he runs up to Jesus and he kneels down before him and he says in such a, you know, honorable and respectful way, uh, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know, these words, you can almost sense the sincerity of this man's heart as he asks this. You know, because we know the whole story, we kind of prejudge him. And when he says this, you know, we're kind of like, Psh. you know. But if you, if you were there following along step by step, I really feel as though this guy really wanted to know. You know, here he is. He's humbling himself before Jesus Christ. He ran up to him. He knelt before him. And he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know, he realized that only Jesus could probably answer this question. Being a rich man himself, he probably had so many resources that he can turn to. But again, it shows, you know, some wisdom on his part to stop Jesus along the way to ask him this question. And Jesus, in stark contrast to the way that this man approached him, he answers this question saying, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know, Jesus, is such a, he's such a gentle guy, but when he answers like this, it's kind of like, you know, like, especially when Jesus asks with a question, answers with a question, it's always like, oh man, he's going to school you in something. Why do you call me good? It's almost like, you don't know me, right? You don't know me. You know, and when I first read through this particular account, I was a little bit confused on why Jesus responded in that way. So I turned to Matthew. If you guys turn with me to Matthew chapter 19, verse 16 to 17, we see Matthew's version, and it kind of gives us a little bit more insight. Matthew chapter 19, verse 16 to 17. And when you guys are ready, uh, again, look at me. All right, let's all read it together on the count of three. Starting from 16, 1, 2, 3. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Amen. Right? So why, why do you ask me about what is good when there is only one who is good? And immediately, Jesus sees right through this question, right? Um, regardless of how sincere this young man was in approaching him, how respectful, how much honor he came, Jesus points out, son, you asked the wrong question. 
you're asking the wrong question. What good deed must I do? And there's a lot of focus going on on himself. What must I do? And Jesus is like, hmm, wrong question, right? And he answers going back to the Mark account. If you guys turn, flip back to Mark. The way that Jesus answers the man here is, why do you call me good? Because he says good teacher, right? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, when you first glance, when you do a first glance at this passage, it almost seems like Jesus is separating himself from God and even denying that he himself is good, right? Why are you calling me good? Only God is good. It's almost like he's separating himself. So it's kind of like, why is Jesus doing that? That's kind of strange. But I think what Jesus is saying under that question is, do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? Because we know that Jesus is God. Amen? And Jesus is good. But here he's separating it. Why do you call me good? Why are you calling me a good teacher? There is only one that is good, and that is God. It's kind of like, do you know that I am God? Do you know who you really are talking to? Do you know who I am? And before the young man, he gets a chance to respond. Jesus continues, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He lists commandments. And this young man, he responds with what I can imagine confidence. And he says, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now, every time I read this part, (laughs) I never fail to roll my eyes at this guy, right? And kind of sigh with disgust. (sighs) Please. What an idiot. I mean, this is Jesus Christ he's talking to. And without hesitation, homeboy, he claims innocence, right? All these I have kept from my youth, right? And I'm like, man, not the brightest crayon in the box, right? Not the sharpest tool in the shed. And immediately I judge him. Immediately I judge him. It's almost like watching reality TV. Now stay, stay with me, right? For so many people, it's so entertaining to laugh at how ridiculous other people are. You know, reality TV, it's blown up in terms of viewings. And no matter what the premise of the show, everyone agrees that it's pretty much garbage. Right? Yet there are millions and millions of people that are addicted to who the you know, next top model is going to be. And who's going to be Paris Hilton's new BFF? It's just, who's going to be it? You know, we're so curious. You know, I myself, I'm going to confess, I have watched some reality TV. And, um, you know, I I also pondered, Lord, why do I watch this? And uh, I figured out it's because it makes me feel good. I mean, basically, I look at these people and I'm like, man, they're dumb. They're superficial. They're retarded, some of these people. And I feel a lot better about myself. You know, I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not like that person, right? And I get kind of proud and, you know, at least I don't have that many issues. But philosopher William James, he puts it this way. 
He says it's one of the strangest laws of our nature that many things which we are well satisfied within ourselves disgust us when seen in others. It is one of the strangest laws of our nature that many things which we are well satisfied within ourselves disgust us when seen in others. What's he saying here? As self-focused as we are, as self-centered as we are, sometimes we are so oblivious to the fact that uh, we ourselves are sinners. Right? Jesus, knowing this flesh tendency of ours, he puts it into perspective in Matthew chapter 7, verse 3. He says it like this. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? So here we are back to the response of the young rich ruler. Immediately, maybe some of you might have joined me in judging this young man, right? Because he tells Jesus, the Son of God, that he's basically without sin. And as appalling as it is for us to read, and as easy as it is for us to judge, my question to you tonight is this. Are we not guilty for having the same attitude? Do we not at times count ourselves as holy or good enough because of our works? Do we not focus on how faithful we've been in coming to prayer meetings and how we've never missed a Sunday service and count that to ourselves as righteousness? Do we not sometimes forget about our desperate need for repentance? Are there never times when we hold on to all that we do, forgetting about the one who is good? And in so many ways and so many different occasions, I think that we all found ourselves in this fallen position of pride. As this young, rich ruler, I think we can relate. We're so quick to judge and scoff at his response when, in reality, we ourselves, we deserve this same judgment. Yet if you read on to verse 21, the way that Jesus responds, responds to this man is awesome, okay? I don't know what else to say. I'm like, awesome. It says, Jesus, looking at him, loved him. You know, Christ's response to us is not one that we deserve. Amen? Jesus was also very aware of what we were thinking in our minds. He also knew that this young man probably might have messed up here and there along the line, and that he looked at him. And I think that passage when he says Jesus looked at him, he was looking at him. He saw him. He saw every sin. He saw every heartbreak. He saw all the parts of this man's heart that maybe even this guy was oblivious to. He saw him and yet he loved him. In the same way, it's while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, Jesus, in love, he then goes on to basically expose this man's heart. He says, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. What was the one thing that this man lacked? You know, when I first read this passage as a child, because it's one of the more famous passages, I was pretty upset. You know, in order to obtain eternal life, I had to literally sell 
everything that I have and give it to the poor. I, I took it very literally, and um, it was very heartbreaking for me. Because I was thinking, man, my sticker collection. No, no, you guys don't understand. I had the scratch and sniff stickers. I had the oily stickers. You guys know about the oily stickers? Yeah, okay. The oily stickers, right? And I had, you know, the poofy stickers. I had, like, the hologram stickers. I had this, like, awesome sticker collection that I had invested in for many years in elementary school. And then I also had, you know, my Barbie dolls. You guys laugh, but this was very serious for me, you know, when I was younger. At the time, there were some of them were deformed because I had this habit of chewing. <laughs> Jesus loves me, all right? And um, thank you, Helen. I saw that hand, hallelujah. Um, or even I had uh, trolls. I don't know if that fad was in your time, but I had trolls with, like, the jewel in the belly that you, like, rub for, you know, good luck. And I had all these things, all my stuffed animals that I, at that age, I really looked at as my prized possessions, my treasure. And to think at that age, when I thought about selling everything, I thought about those things. And it really kind of, it broke my heart. And um, I didn't think it was worth it. I thought those were all too costly to give up. You know, even as I grew older, I wondered about this passage and I remember I was in Maine uh, with my family and, my, and friends. And uh, at the time, I was in third grade. And some of the older kids that we were with were middle school and high school. And they were having this deep discussion about this passage right here. And one of the brothers concluded that it was a sin to be rich. That's what he said. According to this passage, it is a sin to be rich. And again, man, I heard this and I was so disappointed. And I was like, mm, there goes all my dreams. I'm like, blast blast you know what we were doing and what I was doing what this brother was doing is we were all defining that the one thing that this man had lacked was being monetarily poor that's what we were doing one man he puts it like this what if we consider to be poor what if we're considered to be poor by this world are we somehow better than those with more physical goods it would be just as dangerous for an underprivileged person to think that he had made it, that his poverty gave him some sort of piety, as it would for a rich man to trust in his wealth. See, when we dig deeper, we find that it wasn't the man's physical wealth that was the problem. See, the actuality of him being poor wasn't really the solution for eternal life. Now, it's interesting to take note of the commandments that Jesus had listed how many commandments are there? Ten, right? And if you count how many commandments Jesus shared in this passage, it's six. Six commandments are mentioned out of ten. Now, all six of these commandments are commandments that God has given Moses dealing with our relationships with people. Yet the missing four commandments are the commandments that God gives dealing with relationships with who? With God himself. You know, asking him to sell all that he had had and give to the poor exposed the stronghold that was in this young man's life, his dependency on his wealth, his relationship with his wealth, and his lack of dependency, lack of relationship with God. 
And so the young rich ruler, he listens to Jesus. And I think in his mind, he sat for a couple of minutes and waited out. Right? He put things on the scale. Things that matter to him, his possessions, his wealth. And Jesus, eternal life. And in the end, we find out that to him, it was his material possessions that actually outweighed and was more, worth more to him than eternal life. And he walked away with what emotion? Sorrow. Right? And so Jesus then turns to his disciples. He just finished this conversation with this rich young ruler, and he turns to his disciples and he says, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples, they were amazed at his words. And the reason why they were so amazed at this was in the Old Testament, wealth was a sign of God's favor. You see people like Abraham and Job, and, and we notice that they were wealthy in material goods as well. Because wealth was interlinked with God is there, God is with you, uh, God has favor upon you. And so for them to kind of hear that and all of a sudden hear, um, for those who have wealth, it would be difficult for them to enter the kingdom of God. It almost was like a 180 from what they understood. And Jesus continues, children. I love how he says children. Children. In such a loving form, children. And if you look at the passage before this one, Jesus actually talks about, come to me like children. Right? And he says, children, to his disciples, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, and they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is, what? Impossible but not with God, for all things are possible with God. What is Jesus trying to say here? I believe he's trying to establish the truth that without God, without Jesus, no one can be saved. You see, a camel fitting through an eye of a needle is impossible. And the point he's trying to make is, it is impossible without God. If you examine closer, it is impossible without Jesus Christ. See, the following passage talks about Jesus predicting his death and resurrection. And you see the sandwich between entering eternal life with the heart of a child, this passage, and then the prediction of Jesus' death and resurrection. And it kind of all flows together. And we find that the point that Jesus is trying to make is that he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. Jesus is telling us that we are in need of him. Now, we're, most of us, I believe, are saved. Hopefully all of us, but who knows, right? And so for us, you know, this passage is a good reminder, but how can we relate to this now? I believe that I have eternal life, right? But if we look deeper, we see that there's even more spiritual truth here. See, a rich man, a wealthy man, is one without needs, a rich man is someone that lives with abundance. And spiritually, even Christians, there's a lot of us that consider ourselves rich. Right? We allow Jesus to be the savior of our lives, but in terms of other areas, you know, we, we got it under control. We're okay. We're well off in other things, in other security or career. That part, we're okay with. We consider ourselves rich. They don't need God in every 
area of their life. Their security, their love, their joy, their treasure lies maybe within other things. It says in the word that where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so we see that this man, his treasure was in his material goods. And in the same way, we are also guilty. Do you need Jesus to be everything in your life? Ask that question to yourself. Is Jesus everything in your life? He's my savior. He's my deliverer. But is he your first love? Is he your friend? Are we really making Jesus the Lord of our whole heart? That's the question I want to kind of ask you tonight. See, do we feel that we are rich in certain areas? Psalm 52.7 puts it like this. uh, See, the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and and sought refuge in his own destruction. The psalmist is saying here that those that trust in other things of the Lord, they're walking into what? Destruction, right? And so where is your trust tonight? Job 31, 24, 28 says, If I have made gold my trust or find gold my confidence, I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant or because my hand had found much. If I had looked at the sun when it shone or the moon moving in splendor, and my heart has been secretly enticed, and my mouth had kissed my hand, this would also be my iniquity to be punished by the judges, for I would have been false to God above. The attitude of our heart is where God searches, and God is searching our hearts tonight. Is he Lord of all? Do you feel that you need Jesus in all areas of your life? Is Jesus Christ your everything? Or do you feel that you are rich apart from God? Let's look at the flip, to be poor. To be poor is to be deficient or lacking in something, to be dependent, to be in need. It is when a person receives a revelation of lack that we have without Christ being our Lord and Savior, that we finally figure out that he belongs in all facets of our life. And without that, we're doomed. Right? Matthew 5, verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor, the ones that know that they are in need. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 8 says, He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the need from the ash heap. He seats them with the princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. Amen? And Psalm 22, verse 26 says, The poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. Isaiah 14.30 says, The poorest of the poor will find pasture, and the needy will lie down in safety. Now, are we talking about the poor in the wor- being poor in the worldly sense? Well, King David, he said it like this in Psalm 40.17, As for me, I am poor 
and needy? Are we poor in spirit? Do we recognize that we are need, in need of Jesus? Or are we self-sufficient and feeling as though we might not need him in all areas? You see, to the Samaritan woman, Jesus was living water. Right? To the woman with the issue of blood, Jesus was her healer. To the multitudes, Jesus was their teacher. To the demon-possessed man, Jesus was his deliverer. To, the, uh, to Lazarus, Jesus was a miracle worker. To the widow, Jesus was comfort. To the small child, Jesus was protection. To the weak, Jesus is strength. To, the dark, to those in darkness, Jesus is light. And to the dying, Jesus is life. See, the true revelation comes when we find ourselves in all those people. I am the Samaritan woman. I am thirsty. I am Lazarus. I'm dead in my transgressions. I am the blind man, for I am spiritually blind. When we realize that we are all these people and that we are all in need and that we are lack apart from Christ, it is then that Jesus becomes our everything. He becomes our healer. He becomes our deliverer. He becomes our savior. There's a self-recognition that needs to happen first. For the rich man, Jesus was not his everything. But for us, is he our everything? I wish I could say yes, but there are times when I don't live like that. And there are times where I very much consider myself self-sufficient. Lucky for me, God loves me and always hits me across the head. And then I finally understand once again that um, I am in desperate need of him. Amen? Um, Let's turn to Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. If you guys are ready, let's read it together. On the count of 3, 1, Two, three. Continue with verse nine. That depends on faith. That depends on faith. Whether we know it or not, brothers and sisters, we are poor in spirit. Apart from Christ. But in Christ, we find righteousness. Amen? And so everything, Paul says, he considers it a loss apart from Jesus. Because to him, Jesus is everything. To Paul, Jesus is everything. Turn with me to um, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 
the wrong passage. Okay, you guys ready? All right, let's read from 9 to 10 on the count of three. Uh, one, two, three. Amen. Amen. My power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. God is saying, in me you have strength, but apart from me you are weak. Okay. And so we live our lives kind of doing two things. One is we consider ourselves mm, self-sufficient. But other times, we look down on ourselves. Oh, we're weak, we are undisciplined, we are lazy, all this stuff. Those are two things that we tend to do, right? Yet there's a connecting factor that Jesus wants us to understand, which is himself. You see, I am weak, but in Christ, I am strong. See, I am defeated, but in Christ, I am victorious. See, I am poor, but in Christ, I am rich. And so the next time the devil comes into your life and begins to accuse you, yeah, okay, you can agree, but then you tell him that you know about Jesus Christ. For the moment that we acknowledge who Jesus is in our lives, we become like him. And we clothe ourselves with his righteousness. You see, a story told without Jesus Christ is one not worth mentioning. For it is Jesus who determines that very life or death. He is that middle ground. He is the key. And so my prayer for us tonight is that as we understand our lack in every step in every area of our life, we may now get a fresh revelation of God's provision. That every area we are weak, His grace is indeed sufficient because He is all in all. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we just come here tonight and we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. For eternal life is to know him. That is eternal life. God, and we pray for all of those that are lacking revelation of who Jesus is. I pray that even right now, Lord, your spirit will speak to them. God, and that we would all find ourselves once again at the foot of your cross, understanding, Lord, that we are in desperate need of you. Father, for following all of the commandments, it's impossible without you. Being a good person is impossible without you because you alone are good. And so, Father, we want to acknowledge you tonight, and we want to raise you up, and we want to lift you up on high in saying that, Lord, we need you. 
And we thank you that where we lack, where we are nothing, you are everything. Father, we confess that there are areas in our lives where we have not made you the Lord. And we pray that tonight, once again, that we would not follow the folly of this rich young ruler and walk away, but that we would surrender all that we have, Lord, and give it to you so that we can come and follow you. Jesus, you are our everything. Jesus, you are our everything. And I pray as we live our lives and as we know you more, that we may also know ourselves more in you. Father, for all that you are is all that we're called to be. And Father, in that, we rejoice and we thank you. Father, we stand against all the lies of the devil that have been whispering in our minds about our lack. All the areas that we feel insecure all the areas that we feel defeated, Lord, we claim right now that in you, in Christ, we are victorious. In Christ, we lack nothing. Father, for you are our all in all. And so we thank you, Jesus, that in you, we have glorious riches. Hallelujah. We just, we worship you tonight. God, we thank you for your word. And we just pray that throughout this week, you will remind us that you are our everything. In your son's precious name, Jesus Christ, we pray all these things. Amen.